broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline. You're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for another program. We have a very special guest today, congressional candidate, Mr. Jeff Corman. Uh, he's running to, uh, to, and we'll talk a little bit about the congressional district in this program, but uh, thanks for joining us. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you that I'm Paul Wine, owner of Express Employment Professionals in Monterey County at Express. We can help your company find great staff for your business. So give us a call today, 831-242-0645. Or you can uh, Google Express Employment Monterey County or just Express Employment Monterey and we'll come right up. So uh, we, we have a lot to talk about with Jeff. I have a ton of questions to ask. So uh, let's dive right in. Jeff, how are you today, sir? I am fantastic. Thank you for having me on your show, Paul. Oh, I'm, I'm honored. I'm honored. My first question, it may be uh, what they call a CompuSult. I think that's what Albert Brooks would call this, is... Uh, you're facing, it's kind of a quixotic adventure to get elected into Congress at, with an R next to your name in Monterey County. And uh, I think I think by last election, uh, uh, your opponent, Mr. Panetta, probably received a vote tally somewhere around Vladimir Putin's level in the last <laughs> Russian election. So, like, what motivates you and how do you get up in the morning? I mean, it's like, I, I you know, because I have a lot to say about that, but I, I just want to know, like... How do you feel about it? I mean, it's got to be hard because it's a huge mountain you've got to climb. So so can you talk that's a little right. bit about that? Well, you know, that's a great question, Paul. And I am definitely in it to win it. But when you are building a program, which the Monterey County Republican Party is very much building our program, you have to set moderate goals. And those are, you know, take over the world. No, we are, <laughs> we are trying to stand up the Republican Party, help people understand the Republican principles. And believe me, for all people, we believe the Republican principles are good principles and the right principles for running a country. They're good for everyone. You don't have to be in the Republican Party to benefit from Republican ideals of limited government, separation of power, empowering local government over big, faraway governments like Washington, D.C. and Sacramento. So my promise to voters is get to know me and the civic platform that I represent. And I will go to Washington, you know, vote for me and I will go to Washington and keep Washington in its box limited and we will get a great America again. It's it's not impossible. I really think a lot of what Congress does is very complicated and complicates people's lives. And it's not what we signed up for. When you hear consent to the governed, who wants to get used to 400 new federal laws and a thousand new state laws every year? Not even the people passing laws want that. Right. So, so I wake up knowing I want to I want to help people take control of the government back, you know, get back in charge and learn learn about the system as it is. And you'll forgive me for asking some questions that are kind of uh, out of the scope of a, congr- a congressman, uh, because it, a lot of politics, all politics are local. And and what I see is so, for example, recently in Carmel and and the wealthier neighborhoods, maybe Pacific Grove and Monterey, we've been instructed by the housing authority to construct lower income housing. And my argument has always been that kind of prescriptive growth is is kind of wrongheaded because I think things should build more organically. If we built like sort of a, say a sustainable water source and allowed things to grow organically, that housing would, would develop in the right neighborhoods for those people. Um, what 
what could you as a congressperson that, that is representing the coastal areas do to help like alleviate maybe some of our water problems or housing issues? Uh, what, what could be done at the, at the federal level to help with that? Well, I, first of all, I agree with you that those mandates that are coming from Sacramento are onerous and not what the people of Pacific Grove in particular, but also Aptos and Davenport and every community on the Central Coast. We like it small. We want the small town feeling. When we buy into a place like this, as opposed to Oakland or San Francisco or uh, Beverly Hills, we we're, we have an expectation. And when Sacramento comes and tells us, in order to get road money, you have to build 1,100 houses in Pacific Grove. In order to get you know, these various perks, they're giving us stuff that was ours in the first place. You know, government, Reagan used to say, government can't give you anything they didn't take from someone else. I think a founding father said that, but I heard it from Reagan. And that, this idea that we have to build 1,100, says who? You know, who's saying that? And look, I want to solve the homeless problem. But from my point of view, homelessness is really a, a very complex problem. Quite a lot of the cases are they have despair at their heart. And I think this Reagan speech, shining city on the hill, and this idea of if you can make it in America, you can make it anywhere. We need to turn people's hopes around. And part of hope is believing there's a cute little town like Pacific Grove that if you work hard, you can save up your money, pay off your own student debt or never even take debt on, and then get to live in a place like Pacific Grove. And you if they want to just build condos and make everybody able to buy a place, that doesn't work. Uh, to me, I, I put out there, I'm glad you picked on this issue, first of all. And second, I have thought about it. Waikiki and Ipanema, which is the beach at Rio de Janeiro, those are very expensive places. They've got 20-story condos right on the beach. And those those huge condo buildings didn't help the cost of housing. The house, houses are still ridiculously expensive there, but they kind of ruin the beach. And that's what I think Aptos and Pacific Grove and Carmel face is like, who gets to decide the zoning laws? The Democrats in Sacramento took away local zoning control with SB9 and SB10. There, you know, I, I kind of get it about ADUs, but being able to split lots and, and not have local government be in control of zoning and density, that I think is a, a very big slap at local control and at we the people. So it's complicated, Paul, but it's a great question you ask. And I really I really hope we get this worked out uh, where where Americans and, and Pacific Grovens understand the situation that we're facing. We have a, a very overreaching government right now. Yeah, that, that leads into like really the overarching problem. I mean, or overarching issue that I think is true. Like people, I don't want to necessarily talk about abortion, but uh, maybe some other inno more maybe innocuous issue is like at the federal government level, like they, they're so they're so prescriptive of how we use highway funds or how we use education funds or how you use all these funds. And it, what you're, what I think is that they're doing is they're kind of like, almost like Lord of the Rings. They're kind of trying to amass all the power into one seat, <laughs> like the presidency or, or maybe, maybe in the three branches of government. But the more, it seems like the more strings that go back to Washington, the more they can be, I'll tell you to what exactly you're going to do on Alvarado street in Monterey. And, and I don't know why people were, were so outraged by the abortion ruling because nothing's changed in California. I mean, Californians are getting exactly what California wants on that score. But, but more importantly, like things like 
like highway funds or education funds, I think those are almost awful because there's an argument to be made that that even churches could be made illegal just because of of basically central centralization of power at the or at the like the state government level because of nonprofit rules and 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 the strings they can attach to that. But uh, anyway, what what do you think well, about centralization you're, you're right. of power? Yeah. I I agree with your analogy about the Lord of the Rings and power for power's sake. I look at the people that control California. California is a one-party state. Republicans have not won a statewide office in far too long. It's been since 2006. And they've had a supermajority now, I believe, for eight years in both houses of the legislature. And they are passing very dumb laws. Like, you know, just as an example, this idea that they're going to stop selling gasoline cars when our electric grid is already so, so fragile. And what are they trying to do? They are literally trying to control us by using transportation and limiting our ability to transport ourselves, our goods. They are, there's a lot of examples of Sacramento running muck. And I just will put in a plug for my fellows. There are three women that are running for assembly that touch on Monterey Bay. Stephanie Castro from Hollister will represent Salinas. We've got um, our very great Monterey County resident, Vicki Norton, running for from Aptos down to northern San Luis Obispo County. And then we have Liz Lawler representing, you know, she's taking on the seat that Mark Stone had occupied, which has been pushed up towards the Bay Area. She's a great, great civic leader from um, near Saratoga. It's been a mayor and, and a city councilwoman up there. So these three people are vying to take take over the assembly. All one hand, oh, I'm sorry, all 80 assembly seats are available. We could take every assembly seat if we were organized and and really change these rules. So with regard to the power thing, imagine this, you're in a bank and five guys come in with masks and guns and they shoot the place up and terrify you. And then you just like immediately you are surrender your thought that you're going to take control of the situation because these people are brutal. And then they just ask everybody, they, they start being nice and they ask everybody to get in one room. So you and 20 other people are in a room and they, they say, OK, we don't want to hurt anybody. We are just here to rob the bank. We've got this cause and we need the money for the cause. So the police surround the building and they, you're now in a hostage situation, but you're hungry. And they let you go to the bathroom and they get food from the police. And th what I'm describing is, it, to me, if someone took me hostage, I would never forget that they were a bank robber who pointed a gun at me and told me what to do. But what happened in Stockholm when that scenario played out was many of the people that were taken hostage after five days of being holed up in this bank, and getting fed by their hostage takers and allowed to go to the bathroom by their hostage takers, they became sympathetic to the hostage takers. And this is the basis of something called Stockholm Syndrome. I believe that's what the Democrats have done to the people of California, and we need to wake them up. We need people to realize they are being subjugated to a power play, power for power's sake, just like you said about the Lord of the Rings. It's it's so real, and it's so in my face. That is why I got involved. In have you have you researched or read about the mayor of uh, Miami, for example? Do you know about that guy? He's, it's, I don't know enough to talk about it. Yeah, he he's basically he's a Republican mayor and he's kind of lowered taxes and what that resulted in is greater tax revenue. So he was able to double the size or like increase the size of the police force and all but like they have the lowest crime rate uh, since like 1930 there. And wow. and I don't understand. It. It's almost like a North South Korea thing. It's like and I would maybe it is Stockholm syndrome because I don't understand the logic that a lot of the far left uses that we should be more socialist because it's it's never worked 
And the more government does, the less, the more they're open for corruption. For example, like something you may get to vote on is the recent bill just passed by, um, uh, you know, Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh, it was supposedly the Inflation Reduction Act, but it was more about the energy and the environment. But it was a lot of it was for companies that are unionized and really payouts to chosen people. And and I would say it's kind of like global warming. I think the more you drive us into self area you know, these uh, uh, battery-powered cars or something, there might be something else. It might be geothermal. It might be carbon capture. We're kind of ignoring everything by, by just being so specific about wind and solar or whatever. So what what, do you, what are your thoughts on the last couple of recovery acts, like either the Inflation Reduction Act or the uh, the one before that? I think it was called the... I can't remember what it was well, called. But, uh, yeah. Well, they tried to pass Build Back Better. I'm not sure that's what you're talking about. But basically what yeah. the Inflation Reduction Act is, is it's a euphemized Build Back Better which was very much an environmentalist giveaway, a plan to disrupt our existing fuel infrastructure and supersede it with mandates and taxes and incentives to get us to comply with their plans. Now, governments have been doing that kind of thing forever and honestly euphemizing rules, but that law, Inflation Reduction Act, will not affect inflation at all. And Jimmy Panetta just put up, a you know, that's my opponent in this race, he just put up how great it is for the environment. Well, why isn't it called the Environmental Improvement Act then, Jimmy? What does it have to do with inflation? And I have a term that's derisive, meant to be derisive, about the Democrat Party in general, and it's that they're watermelons, green on the outside, environmentalist, and red on the inside. They are literally driving us more and more towards a top-down, command-and-control economy. And it is it is not where most people want to live. I mean, if you ask, look, San Francisco just had the recall of their uh, district attorney, right? They also recalled three school district members in the San Francisco school district that had spent the whole first year of COVID renaming schools instead of trying to figure out how to help kids learn. We see the terrible results of the crime in San Francisco, the terrible results of the education policies, and the voters who are overwhelmingly, like 75% Democrats, voted to recall these people because they can see through the platitudes and the wrongness of these policies. So I know um, it's it's dark right now, but we just got to take back the power. We, the people, we we determine who wins. And the, the biggest challenge is getting people excited. Did you see about Pacific Grove Unified that there were, there were three ter- trustee areas and two of them, there was no contest. Only one person filled out the paper. And they're just automatic. Yeah, we, we've talked a lot about that. And, and that's the pernicious part of, uh, to get really local with the politics, is Pacific Grove is also thinking about going down to five council members, and they're all going to be in districts rather than at large. And the more you go towards those smaller districts, people can run unopposed and win with like 105 votes or something. And yeah, yeah that's that's a very specific issue we've talked a lot well, about it, on this program. Yeah, it's you know, So the, these issues... One thing that happens, we've gotten into a top-down mindset. So whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Obama or George Bush, we, we are just, we need to deepen the thought process. There is a lot that should be happening at local school boards and at city councils and at county supervisor meetings to push back against this top-down mandate. But if you just watch TV or you just follow a few favorite podcasters, you're going to mainly, you know, the big market is the national news. But so much happens locally, and we really have a failure in our local politics. I mean, I'm very happy for one of our city councilmen here. He went unopposed. We are in Monterey. We have four districts now. They've done what you just described in PG. They've already done it. And in both of the city council districts that were up, 
there's only one candidate. So the people of Monterey aren't even going to know the name of their city council people. They're not, there's nobody's going to be on the ballot at all. And in Seaside, where they still have at large, all three city council seats that were up, the mayor and two city council seats, there was only one person that filed. There's not going to be anything on the ballot about the city of Seaside. Isn't that, it's crazy to me. It's just, it, it, it is, I think it works. There's a certain level. It's like, it's an economy. It's like a, at the scale, I think at the county level, it kind of makes sense because you want to have someone from Arena and someone from King City, and it kind of works in that way. But when you start getting down to like the city of Monterey, I, I, yeah, I, I just don't think it, it makes it, it doesn't make much sense because you're never going to get enough candidates in, in a small enough in one of those like miniature districts. But uh, speaking of districts, now this is your the district that you're running for has just been redrawn. Um, so we are separate now. The district you're running from is now separate from Salinas, which is a new thing because the old old district that uh, Jimmy Pimenetta represented went all the way up to, I think, South San Jose almost up in like Gilroy, that area, and then all the way down uh, to parts of uh, northern San Luis Obispo. Uh, now, can you describe the new district? Sure, I'll, I'll contrast it too. So you're you're almost right. The old District 20, which is now 19, because we lost a seat, we lost a congressional seat, has been massively redrawn. We lost one, in California, we lost, because of the census, we lost one of our 53 congressional seats. So one over 50 is 2%. It's about a 2% change. The problem is you have to start the map at one of the boundaries, so north, south, east, west. And they started at the north, and they worked their way down on the numbering system. So by the time you get to what used to be District 20 times 2%, it's 40% change in the district. On top of that, they wanted to build a community of interest for Hispanics. So they picked Salinas, Watsonville, Castroville, Hollister, Gilroy, and Morgan Hill as a Hispanic majority area. And we have a great candidate running for the Republicans out there, Peter Hernandez. And I'm very happy for him. But what that left is a very thin ribbon going down the coast in Monterey County and Santa Cruz County. And then at both ends, it expands out. So there is now 170,000 voters in San Jose that have never voted for Jimmy Panetta or Jeff Gorman. And of course, I want them to vote for me, Jeff Gorman. But the point of the story is that redistricting is tremendous, is huge. It improved the district party-wise by about 3%. But importantly, it added that San Luis Obispo area, the northern half of San Luis Obispo County is now newly, never before, not for 20 years, has San Luis Obispo been part of Monterey's congressional district. And that is the closest thing to Texas that California Coast has. I won that district. The Republicans got 54% of the vote versus Democrats in the primary got 46, 54, 46. And so I'm, I told those folks down there, the Republican Party of San Luis Obispo, that I would take the message, the Republican message, the self-help, the individual rights and also individual responsibility message up into San Jose and up into the Bay Area. But I'm very hopeful for San Jose because... Those people are dealing with the crime. They're dealing with the inflation. They're dealing with their kids getting drugs that they should never be exposed to. They're dealing with their their children getting exposed to sexual ideas they should not be contemplating until they're adolescent. They're getting it way too young. Those parents have a chance to really change the state of California and change the direction. So the redistricting is, I think, a big advantage. But we are still on the Central Coast. It's very blue. And as I said, I think the voters are sort of captivated into believing that government solves all the problems and all the resources come from government. And I'm trying to wake people up that we take care of it ourselves. I'm guessing that the it's more or less, it's hard to call it not gerrymandering because it is, but I'm guessing that they're hoping, uh, the Democrats are hoping that the uh, Democratic majority in, in like um, 
Santa Cruz, Scotts Valley, and then the, those parts of the Bay Area are going to somehow nullify the uh, Republican gains down in uh, San Luis Obispo. But that it'll be interesting. Hopefully, uh, I don't know. I, th- I think people, I, I, I'm optimistic like you. I think people are slowly waking up to it. And I think you'll be a little bit further from that Vladimir Putin line <laughs> next year. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I have a, some, uh, do you have any thoughts about the $22 minimum wage uh, for fast food workers? Oh, you know, I've got a teenager that works in a fast food restaurant. She's very happy with the job, actually, and they're great. It's in and out, and they're fantastic, you know. So I think minimum wages are pretty well studied by the field of economics. They definitely hurt small business. They put advantages towards larger, more established brands with corporate backing. There is something in in economics called regulatory capture, where the big players get cozy with the regulators, including labor boards, and they push for rules that hurt the little guy and help the big guy. And so, I, you know, if I were working for minimum wage, of course, I'd want the, the wage hike. But there's studies out there in economics that show higher minimum wage means lower entry-level jobs, fewer entry-level jobs. And it's well, a big challenge. I, I would see, the thing is, I agree with you. I have a teenage son. And I freely say I own an employment agency. He's not worth minimum wage, and neither was my daughter. When she, and it's like, and that's not to you know cast aspersions towards my son. It's like they need ten dollars to eleven dollars an hour jobs for you know teenagers because they need to get into the workforce. And this may promote like robot, you know, maybe the key, there'll be kiosks at uh, McDonald's now over this. But it's nice if you can get one of the jobs. But a lot of times, I think what it'll mean is your your uh, teenagers just won't get hired because they're. They just don't produce enough to warrant that wage. Yeah. But, well, let me just tell a story. I, I got my first job was independent contractor, newspaper delivery boy. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got a certain amount of deliveries of newspapers because they knew how many subscribers there were. And I was supposed to deliver those and collect for those and then send the money in to that. I sent their fee and I got to keep a little bit of the money on delivery and I got tips. That was my first job. I was 10. Mine too. Yep. I did the exact same thing, Jeff. That's funny. Then I went to work as an ice cream scooper. I got minimum wage and I like to think I was probably worth it. And the people that owned the shop made a pretty good amount of money, but these are entry level jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Then I go and I become a bus boy and I'm, I'm actually my first bus boy job was at a union shop. It was at the higher Regency Monterey and it was a good job. I made a cut of the tips. I got minimum wage and and uh, that was fine. But then when I got an opportunity to be a waiter, I was working my way up. And it was really the tips and the entrepreneurship of being a good waiter, being snappy, being able to handle more tables that allowed me to make more money. And I and I think that when we when people imagine higher minimum wage, they think they're helping someone. But actually having commerce occur and giving people a chance to get started is more important than the price they get paid at the start. You know, it's almost like apprenticeships. Where mm-hmm. you get you get an exposure and you're not or an internship. A lot of internships are unpaid. You're getting exposure and you're getting to prove that you're worth something, and then that sets your wages. So I think minimum wages are horrible. And now in terms of the employment agency, how do you handle that? That's kind of a curious thing. I, you know, I'm interested. Well, yeah. Well, the interesting thing I think about it is is like you bring up a good point because we will work a lot. We don't work a lot with franchises like large, you know, in and out and McDonald's and that sort of thing. And what it does is it really hurts the guy that owns a candy store. Because if you're a guy that owns a candy store and you want to pay $14.50 or $15 an hour to the teenager that you're going to give a job to, if that if that person could get a $22 an hour job working at Jack in the Box, um, it's harder to find employees or you have to pay more. So now maybe they'd rather work at the candy store, but you're going to have to pay 19 instead of 15 So 
and and ultimately the candy costs more to the consumer. But I, I I hear it from small business owners. It's like painful for them because they they really can't because they, they it's harder to compete because they just can't operate at the margins that that the larger companies can. So I yeah I uh, yeah I'm friends with a lot of business small business owners and it's just it's it's I mean I think it's bad for everybody. I, I mean we talk a lot about the business owners, but it's really bad for the employees. It's bad for my teenage son. It's bad for uh, you know so many people. But I want to talk a little bit about power. Uh, like um, you know, California buys something like twenty five percent of their power from uh, the outlying states, and supposedly we're the greenest. And our power grid's kind of failing, and we have to have these rolling blackouts, and we can't charge our Teslas and stuff. So I have a proposal for you, Jeff Gorman. Could you, if you were elected to Congress, somehow fund the conversion of the Moss Landing plant to a, a large-scale nuclear power plant, and then we could be the, <laughs> the, uh, the innovative center, and we could power the entire Bay Area with this beautiful green energy, and California could become uh, energy independent uh, once and for all. Wow, Paul, I, that's a big transition. I want to just, I'll tell you. I just, I'm joking. I, I would never on. expect you to get on. But. I know the, uh, but it is that, that area is a potent area and we need, we need water and nuclear power is actually very safe. If you look at how many people are killed in conventional power plants, even solar power plants, windmills versus nuclear power plants, they are the safest. And you can use that power in the off hours to do things to take demand away from a centralized area where you might be doing desalination, you can keep the plant running at full optimization if you have other uses for the power. Mm. So let me talk back just a little bit, go back to the idea you had about um, employment and so forth. The Congress's job is not to deal with employment. I think it's, it was a big mistake when we started getting into National Labor Relations Council and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. These should be state issues. The federal job is macroeconomics, getting you know, the weights and measures figured out so that we know what a dollar is worth, getting you know the banking system to function so that you can transfer money across the country and out of state, to handle national security, including money laundering by cartels and that sort of thing. Those are federal level jobs, securing the border so that our children aren't dying of fentanyl. That's what I would like to do. And then if you, we talked about Inflation Reduction Act, which the Democrats pushed through and they admit it, their, their best economists admit it, won't do anything about inflation. If you actually want to improve on our stability of our money. We need to balance the budget. We need to get the federal government out of trying to micromanage things and get the government focused on national security, the macroeconomy, that kind of thing is where it's at. So that's what I'm going to try to do. The benefit to commerce is there's a lot of people out there that would like to do things that there's so much regulation. And the state of California has been losing to other parts of the country, all kinds of people. I mean, I'm sure you know people, and I know our listeners have lost friends and family that have moved away. And I want to turn that around by highlighting, using my position as congressman and as a candidate right now as a bully pulpit to say it doesn't have to be this way. We have one big advantage over Cuba. We have the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights. We have the right to assemble. We have the right to insist our voice being heard through the ballot box. We have all the other bills of rights, Bill of Rights, and we need to start asserting that power. And it really, we need your listeners to consider going to a school board meeting or a city council meeting, bring a notepad and think about other things while you're there, but just realize how much stuff needs to happen at the local level and then vote for Congress people that will put the power back into the hands of we, the people at the local level. That's what I'm running for. That's awesome. That's great. I, I, I love that. Can you, uh, one quick question, can you tell me what committee uh, you would most likely to be on? And if the Republicans say took over Congress, you would like to chair if you could have yeah. your dream committee. Well, 
my my background is in finance. I my first job out of college was dealing with the Latin American countries who had defaulted on their debt and had had massive like we had a terrible inflation problem in the 70s. South America, Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, Argentina, they did not get a handle on it until the end of the 80s and early 90s. And I had studied those problems, the Latin America debt crisis, and that was my first job dealing with that. So I think being on the finance committee, focusing on macroeconomic stability would be a good committee assignment for me. But I'm a junior guy and I won't be able to pick. I care very <laughs> deeply about national security. The national interest is very poorly defined. What our national interest is in the Ukraine is not well defined. The, the current Congress have not debated whether we should be at war in the Ukraine. And we are, they, they do once in a while admit we are in a proxy war. We've spent 10 times as much on Ukraine as we spent. Uh, we spent uh, ten, it's all right. We've spent 10 times as much in the Ukraine in the last six months as we've spent on the border in a whole year. I am I'm disappointed, Jeff. Yeah, we're out of time. And I wanted to get into Russia, China, and all that other stuff. And we, I spend too much time talking about local politics. I apologize. But you are fantastic. I, I really, uh, our listeners, stay tuned at 4 p.m. And you can hear more of Jeff for a full hour. And he'll tell you all about China and Russia and all of his thoughts. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, I'm Paul Wine, owner of Express Employment Professionals, Monterey County. If you uh, need great people for your uh, business, please give us a call today, 831-920-1857. And I'd like to thank my producer, Mark Carbonaro, best in the business, and of course, Dave Marzetti, host of the Saturday morning Shagbag radio show at 9 a.m. right here on 104, I mean, 101.1 FM and uh, 1460 a.m.